Okay, so today I'm going to be talking about fluids and electrolytes and also acid-base balance. So getting started with fluid distribution, um, water makes up about 60% of the body weight in men and 50% in women. And that's due to differences in adipose tissue. Muscles hold a whole lot more water than fat. And as far as the water breakdown itself, about two-thirds of that fluid is in the intracellular space and one-third is in the extracellular space. So majority of the bodily fluids are in intracellular spaces. So starting off with the osmosis, um, we know that water moves from the side with fewer non-diffusible particles to the side that has more. So if you had a space with a lot of solutes and a space with fewer, the water in the space with fewer would move into the one with more to kind of dilute them. So you can have osmotic pressure, which is the effectively the pushing pressure that occurs as water is entering an area. And we know that water will always be following solutes. We also have the concept of tonicity. Um, this is the effect of the osmotic pressure of a solution with an impermeable solute that will exert on the cell. So when we have a hypotonic solution, there are more particles inside the cell than outside, so the water is going to move in, the cell is going to swell and could even burst. In a hypertonic solution, we have more solutes in the solution than in the cell, so the fluid is going to move out of the cell to follow those solutes and dilute the solution. In an isotonic solution, there the solutes are at approximately the same concentration, so fluid is able to, to inter-exchange between the cell and the solution freely without changing concentration. So when we're looking at capillary interstitial fluid exchange, there are four forces that control this movement of water between the capillary and interstitial spaces. So first we have capillary filtration hydrostatic pressure. So this is going to be, since we know it's hydrostatic, that means it's a pushing pressure. So this is the water pushing out of the capillary into the interstitial space. It's a mechanical force, and like I said, it's also known as filtration, because it's kind of filtering that water out of the blood. We also have interstitial hydrostatic pressure, and this is the force that the capillary hydrostatic pressure must overcome to get water out into the interstitial space. It's usually not particularly high, except when there is a particular physical mechanism like Ted hose, for example, where you're really trying to keep that fluid in the vasculature. So a capillary hydrostatic is pushing against interstitial hydrostatic to get out of the vasculature. We also have capillary colloidal osmotic pressure, which is known as reabsorption. So this is the pulling force of proteins that are in the capillaries that pull the water back into the capillary. So that's why it's known as reabsorption. The vasculature is reabsorbing that fluid. Finally, we have interstitial colloidal osmotic pressure, and this is the pressure that the proteins in the tissue exert on that fluid as far as that pulling fluid. So when you're looking at what's going to happen in a particular um, capillary or something like that, you would have to consider the forces of the relationship between these four forces interacting. So just another quick review of those. We have hydrostatic pressure, which is pushing against the vessel to enter into interstitial space. And in capillaries, that'll be higher on the arterial side than the venous side. We have the colloidal osmotic pressure in the, in the vessels, which is the force that keeps fluid within the vascular space. It remains constant, and it's really important to have those plasma proteins to keep that fluid in there.
So since we know we have our four forces at play, we have capillary hydrostatic and tissue hydrostatic forces, also capillary and tissue osmotic colloidal forces. Um, net filtration is going to occur near the arterial end since the capillary hydrostatic pressure is greater than the blood colloidal osmotic pressure. There's no net movement at the midpoint since the capillary hydrostatic pressure equals the blood colloidal osmotic pressure, but we do have net reabsorption near the venous end since blood colloidal osmotic pressure is greater than capillary hydrostatic pressure. Okay, so lymph drainage, approximately 10% of the fluid in the interstitial space is going to enter the lymph system when it's not reabsorbed by the vasculature. And when it's not reabsorbed by either the vasculature or the lymph system, it does become edema. And edema is defined as palpable swelling produced by the expansion of interstitial fluid volume. So this is a physiologic phenomenon. There are many mechanisms that contribute to it, including increased capillary filtration pressure, decreased capillary colloidal osmotic pressure. So that means um, a lot more fluid is being pushed out and the capillaries are less able to take it back in with those plasma proteins, um, increased capillary permeability. So that generally allows those big proteins to exit and the obstruction of lymph fluids. So we have more fluid being pushed out, not enough pulling force and proteins in the capillary to pull the water back. The spaces are really large between the capillary cells. So large proteins can exit. You're losing that colloidal osmotic pressure in the capillary. And when you have lymph obstruction, the fluid is not going to be reabsorbed. We also have the concept of third spacing, which is when there's an accumulation of fluid in the transcellular space. So this basically results in either edema or pitting edema. So pitting edema is the accumulation of interstitial fluid that exceeds the absorptive capacity of tissue. So if you push it down, there's kind of no um, gel that's absorbed that water. And so the water will just move freely and you'll have kind of dents that remain in the tissue. You also have non-pitting edema, which is usually caused by plasma proteins that have accumulated and coagulated in tissue spaces. So when we're looking at sources of gains and losses of body water, um, with oral intake, we have about 1,000 milliliters through water and 1,300 through food, um, about 200 milliliters from the, the water in, of oxidation. So this results in a total of 2,500 milliliters of intake. For output, we have about 1,500 lost in urine and then also insensible losses like through the lung, 300 milliliters, 500 milliliters from the skin, and 200 milliliters in feces every day. And those insensible losses can't be measured. So a great laboratory value to give information about hydration status is the urine-specific gravity. So a normal urine spec grav is 1.010 to 1.03. So when you have a low specific gravity, it's going to be less than that 1.01, which means the urine is really dilute. When you have a high specific gravity, it's going to be over 1.03, which would indicate dehydration since the urine is highly concentrated. So there are a few different factors that regulate um, water balance in the body. Um, we have thirst and antidiuretic hormone. So these are going to be using serum osmolality as the metric, along with blood volume. And this is the osmotic pressure of a solution um, expressed in terms of solutes. So kind of the number of particles within the solution. So when your body detects low osmolality, it's going to 
prompt the lack of thirst, so you're decreasing your water intake and decreased antidiuretic hormone release, which causes water to be lost in your urine. So that's if you're kind of overhydrated with that low osmolality. When you have a high osmolality, which means you're pretty much dehydrated, you're going to experience thirst, which will prompt you to increase your water intake, and also the release of antidiuretic hormone, which means water is going to be reabsorbed from your urine to increase your blood volume and kind of decrease that osmolality. So one um, pathogenic disorder that we have of fluid balance is diabetes insipidus. Um, there are a couple different etiologies. You could have neurogenic DI, which is caused by decreased antidiuretic hormone production, or nephrogenic, which would be a decreased renal response to antidiuretic hormone. So they're both based on antidiuretic hormone, which is whether it's being produced properly or being received properly. It basically causes excessive urinary output and results in hypertonic dehydration. So you're going to see really high sodium levels in these people because the water's being lost at a much more rapid rate than sodium. So this is treated with DDAVP or desbopressin acetate. Um, you could also use thiazide diuretics for only nephrogenic. And that has a paradoxical effect in nephrogenic DI and would prompt decreased urine output. So DDAVP or desmopressin is actually an analog of natural ADH and it's used for diabetes insipidus. Um, it reabsorbs the water in the kidney tubules and it's administered nasally. We also have the syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. So this is when you have um, really low volumes of it. So we have, this could be due to a failure of hypo the hypothalamus in detecting the water fluid needs. Could also be transient due to stress, surgery, or lung tumors. Or you could just have excessive um, antidiuretic hormone secretion. So this results in high volumes of antidiuretic hormone in the body and results in decreased urine output and dilutional hyponatremia. So water is being kept in the blood and diluting the sodium. So this would be treated with water restriction, diuretics, and aquaretics. So if you remember diabetes insipidus, you're going to have hyponatremia. Um, SIADH, you'll have hyponatremia. Okay, so what are electrolytes? They are substances that dissociate in a solution to form charged particles or ions. And they're absolutely essential in metabolic processes. So looking at electrolyte composition, um, we have a couple different predominant ones. Um, if we're looking at cations and the extracellular fluid, sodium is going to be by far the most important there. Um, but in the intracellular fluid, we'll have potassium being the most important. For anions in extracellular fluid, it's going to be chloride. So you can just think of sodium chloride. And then intracellular, it'll be phosphorus and proteins. So starting off with sodium, the normal level is 135 to 145 um, milliequivalents per liter. And this is the major electrolyte in the blood, like we said, in that extracellular space. So some signs and symptoms um, of hyponatremia, you're going to see a decreased serum osmolality. So these people are going to be usually overhydrated. You'll also have a decreased spec grab of their urine, which indicates that they have really dilute urine. Some of the symptoms that you'll see 
in the skeletal system, you'll see um, muscle cramps and depressed reflexes. Um, in the central nervous system, headache, confusion, lethargy, seizure, coma. And based on the GI tract, you'll have anorexia, diarrhea, and cramps. In hypernatremia, you'll have an increased serum osmolality and an increased spec grab. So the urine is um, more concentrated and so is the urine. In the tissue, you'll see dry skin and decreased turgor, decreased salivation, and that's kind of all due to that lack of fluid volume. Also in the central nervous system, you'll have a headache and confusion. And then in the cardiovascular, hypertension, weak rapid pulse, and vascular collapse. So one thing that's really important to consider here, neurons are able to respond to hypertonicity, so in excess of electrolytes like sodium. So they're able to protect themselves from hypertonic dehydration by producing internal solutes that can hold their water inside the cell. So when you have someone who's chronically um, hypernatremic, their neurons will have produced their own solutes to keep that water in. So when you're looking at correcting hypernatremia, it is really important to go slowly because in the body and especially in the brain, it's going to adapt to those higher sodium concentrations. So if you rapidly lowered the sodium concentration outside the cell, it would be end up being a hypotonic solution compared to the, the higher electrolyte levels inside the cells, and it can cause swelling and cause cells to burst, which could result in cerebral brain injury, seizures, and even death. So really important to consider that when you're treating hypernatremia so you can take into account those intracellular osmoles that the nervous cells produce to protect their water balance. Okay, moving on to potassium. The normal level in the blood is 3.5 to 5.0 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is super important. It controls the cell resting potential. It's also needed for the sodium-potassium pump. Makes sense. And is also a buffer system for um, the pH. So it's exchanged for hydrogen to buffer the pH of the blood. So just a quick review on the basics of cell firing. So the cell begins with a relatively negative internal charge, which is known as the resting membrane potential. We experience some stimulus, which causes the sodium channels to open. Sodium then diffuses in, making the cell more positive. When it really reaches threshold potential, more sodium gates will open and sodium will rush in, making the cell extremely positive, which is when we call it depolarization. So this is when we have the action potential and the cell responds, usually by contracting. So that's kind of the cell firing. Then the um, potassium channels will open. Potassium will diffuse back in, making the cell negative again, also known as repolarization. The sodium-potassium pump will remove the last molecules of sodium from the cell and pump the potassium back in so the cell will have that negative resting membrane potential and be able to fire again. So since potassium is the electrolyte responsible for maintaining this resting membrane potential, it's extremely important. So when you see someone with hyperkalemia, it's going to raise the th resting potential towards threshold because there's a higher concentration inside the cell than usual. So it's less negative than usual. This means that cells are going to fire more easily in hyperkalemia. In hypokalemia, on the other hand, it's lowering the resting potential away from threshold. So cells are going to fire less easily because you're going to need more sodium to come in to counteract that effect. Because of this, you will see EKG changes in this. So in hyper hypokalemia, 
you'll have um, PR wave prolongation or PR interval, um, depressed ST and low T, and also a prominent U wave. In hyperkalemia, you'll have a low P wave, um, PR prolongation, widening of the QRS, and also a peak to T wave. So those are some pretty um, quickly identifiable changes on EKGs. So potassium also plays a role as a buffer, as I already stated. So we have in alkalosis, there aren't enough hydrogen ions in the blood, which are responsible for that pH. So cells are going to be releasing their hydrogen ions to try to fix this imbalance and potassium exchanges for hydrogen. So in an alkalotic state, cells release their hydrogen and they're going to take up potassium in exchange. So blood potassium is going to decrease in alkalosis. And you'll see hypokalemia. In acidosis, on the other hand, you have far too many hydrogen ions in the blood. So cells are uptaking hydrogen ions and keeping their current hydrogen ions inside in order to fix the imbalance. So they're going to be releasing potassium in exchange. So then blood potassium will increase in acidosis and you're going to see hyperkalemia. So some signs and symptoms in hypokalemia will have neuromuscular symptoms like weakness, fatigue, paresthesia, paralysis, and GI problems. Um, we'll also have confusion and depression in addition to cardiovascular changes like postural hypo hypotension and arrhythmias. In hyperkalemia, we'll have neuromuscular changes like weakness, dyspnea, paresthesia, paralysis, and GI problems. In addition to those car cardiovascular EKG changes like the peaked narrow T waves, a widened QRS, and potentially even a rest if it's serious. Now looking at calcium, um, it's usually present and should be in the body at 8.5 to 10.5 milligrams per, per deciliter. Extracellularly, it has the responsibility of blocking sodium gates in nerve and muscle cells to control excessive firing and preventing tetany. Intracellularly, it's needed for all muscle contraction, especially in cardiac and skeletal cells, and it also plays a role in clotting. So calcium regulation in the body, um, we have parathyroid hormone, which is going to increase serum calcium. So it does this by decreasing renal excretion, promoting reabsorption from bone, and also increasing inner intestinal absorption. So parathyroid increases. Calcitonin is going to be the hormone that decreases serum calcium. And I kind of think of this as like toning calcium, so slimming it down, less serum calcium. So it's going to increase renal excretion and decrease reabsorption from the bone. So our two hormones, parathyroid increases, calcitonin decreases. So as we talked about, extracellular calcium controls nerve firing. So in states where someone is hypercalcemic, so they have too much calcium in the body, it's going to block more sodium gates and nerves are going to be less able to fire. Which is kind of counterintuitive, but just think of it as blocking sodium gates. In hypocalcemia, so there's not enough calcium in the body, it's going to block fewer sodium gates and nerves are going to fire more easily. So one way you could look at this and test for it is the Chavstek sign. You basically percuss lightly over the side of the face. You're percussing the facial nerves effectively. And in hypocalcemia, because those nerves are firing more easily, you'll see um, 
like facial muscle contraction called the chopstick sign. So some other symptoms in hypocalcemia, so nerves are firing more easily, you'll have neuromuscular symptoms like paresthesias, cramps, hyperreflexia, and tetany. Um, cardiovascularly, you'll have hypotension and prolonged QT, and skeletally, you'll have osteoporosis because so much calcium is just being pulled, pulled out of those cells. In hypercalcemia, you're going to see renal effects like renal insufficiency and kidney stones. That's because the kidneys are trying to excrete calcium, so it's building up, causing stones, and also just being taxing to the kidneys in general, causing that insufficiency. Neuromuscularly, we'll have ataxia, weakness, lethargy, and even coma due to that inability for nerves to fire. And also cardiovascularly, there'll be hypertension. Moving on to magnesium, the normal levels are 1.8 to 2.7 milligrams per deciliter. Magnesium is going to be our cofactor in enzymatic reactions, things like ATP, DNA replication, uh, messenger RNA production, so really important there. Magnesium also regulates calcium levels by binding to receptors, and kidneys are able to excrete magnesium if we have excessive levels. One thing to remember, magnesium affects heart rhythm, so alterations in its metabolism can be life-threatening. So some symptoms of hypomagnesium, um, we have neuromuscular symptoms like weakness, paresthesias, and personality changes. Cardiovascularly, you can also see cardiac arrhythmias. In hypermagnesemia, um, you'll have neuromuscular changes like lethargy, hyporeflexia, confusion, and coma, and also cardiovascularly, hypotension, arrhythmias, and arrest. So the second section of this lecture is about agents affecting the volume and ion content of body fluids. So defining diuretics, they increase the output of urine, so they could be used to treat hypertension, mobilize edematous fluids, or prevent renal failure by increasing the volume of fluids. Um, just quick anatomy and physiology about the kidneys. The basic functional unit of the kidney is the nephron, and it contains four functionally distinct regions the glomerulus, the proximal convoluted tubule, the loop of Henle, and the distal convoluted tubule. And the kidneys have three basic functions. They cleanse extracellular fluid and maintain extracellular volume and composition. Um, they also maintain acid-base balance and excrete metabolic waste and foreign substances. So we have three basic renal processes. Filtration, which occurs at the glomerulus, Reabsorption, in which 99% of water, electrolytes, and nutrients undergo reabsorption, so are taken back into the blood and body. And also active tubular secretion, in which the, this occurs in the proximal convoluted tubule, and it allows secretion of things like um, hydrogen ions and also bicarb. So there are a few different sites of diuretic action. Um, the processes of reabsorption occur at specific sites along the nephron, including the proximal convoluted tubule, in which 65% of filtered sodium and chloride are reabsorbed here, and then the water will follow passively. Um, the loop of Henle, in the distal loop of Henle, um, you have low ion permeability, so it's freely permeable to water. So water will be drawn from the loop to the interstitial space so it can create more concentrated urine. In the ascending loop of Henle, um, about 20% of filtered sodium and chloride are taken out and water is not reabsorbed. And then the distal convoluted tubule. 
In the early segment, about 10% of sodium and chloride are reabsorbed, and in the late segment, you have aldosterone and antidiuretic hormone that function. So that late distal convoluted tubule and collecting duct are going to be where you have sodium potassium exchange and also the regulation of urine concentration. So there are some general adverse effects of all diuretics. Um, you could have hypovolemia, like dehydration, orthostatic hypotension, and thirst due to the excessive urination. Um, you could have acid-base imbalance, since all metabolic processes, as we know, need 7.35 to 7.45 pH. Or you could have disturbances of electrolyte levels, which have a variety of signs and symptoms, including like movement, neuro, um, cognitive, and cardiac. So the four major categories of diuretics, we have the loop or high ceiling diuretics, um, thiazide diuretics, osmotic, and potassium sparing, with two categories, aldosterone antagonists and also non-aldosterone antagonists. And then our fifth group is going to be carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. So starting out with our loop high ceiling diuretics, we're looking at furosemide here. So this is the most pre frequently prescribed loop diuretic. Um, it acts on the ascending loop of Henle um, to block reabsorption of sodium and chloride and thus also prevent passive reabsorption of water. Um, it has a really rapid onset. PO is about 60 minutes and by IV it's 5 minutes, so you're going to have a profound diuresis. It does have some adverse effects. Um, it could cause hypokalemia, especially if patient, the patient is on digoxin. It will cause digoxotoxicity. Um, it could cause hyponatremia, um, hypochloremia, and dehydration as well since it's blocking reabsorption of sodium and chloride. You could also have hypotension just from the loss of volume and the relaxation of the venous smooth muscle. And finally, ototoxicity, which would affect the ear and could cause the damage to your um, ability to balance and things like that and hearing. So you want to give it really, really slowly IV. And generally speaking, the biggest concern would be hypokalemia since potassium has such major impacts on the nervous system. And as we know, hypokalemia increases the risk of digitoxicity. So that is ferrosamide. We also have thiazide diuretics. So ferrosamide and loop diuretics act on the ascending loop of Henle. So loop diuretics. Our thiazide diuretics, such as hydrochlorothiazide, work on the early segment of the distant distal convoluted tubule. So they block sodium and chloride reabsorption, um, but you have significantly less water loss than loop diuretics and less electrolyte loss. So this is going to be used for hypertension and edema. It does not work if the glomerular filtration rate is below 20 cc's per minute, so it can't be used in individuals with renal failure. It is worth noting that it has a paradoxical effect in people with diabetes insipidus. Um, thiazide diuretics can reduce urine production by 30 to 50% at really high levels. Um, it could potentially cause hyponatremia, hypochloremia, hypovolemia, hypokalemia, retention of uric acid, which leads to gout, and also hyperglycemia. So you're going to have just generally a lower max urine flow since you're only absorbing 10% of sodium chloride here. So you would really mostly use it for hypertension, not for um, severe edema or anything like that. And as we said, the counter um, contraindications would be people with renal failure or severe edema. 
Next, we have potassium-sparing diuretics. These are actually commonly used with other diuretics to counter the um, potassium-wasting effects of diuretics. So we have two types here. We have aldosterone antagonists and non-aldosterone antagonists. So our aldosterone antagonists are, as we know, aldosterone um, promotes the retention of sodium in water and excretion of potassium. So if we're looking at aldosterone antagonists, they are going to block aldosterone in the distal nephron, so encouraging the retention of potassium and the increased excretion of sodium. So it's going to be like spirolactone um, or elorenone. So they end in own. Um, with our non-aldosterone antagonists, we have triamterene or amyloridine. These directly block potassium loss and are given in combination with loop diuretics. Next, we have our osmotic diuretics. An example of this is mannitol. This is actually a physiologically inert diuretic. Um, but it moves intracellular fluid into vascular space by creating an osmotic force within the lumen of the nephron. So it's inhibiting the passive reabsorption of water by increasing the um, particle concentration in the urine. It's not going to be absorbed through the gastric mucosa, so it must be given through IV. And it's given for edema or loss of tissue fluid usually. It can also be used to decrease the intracranial pressure in um, situations of brain trauma. Or also as prophylaxis of renal failure. Since dehydration causes decreased blood flow, um, more this mannitol remains in the nephron to draw water in and preserve the urine flow. So just reviewing those again really quickly, we have the loop high ceiling that work on the ascending loop of Henle. Um, it is going to block reabsorption of sodium and chloride to prevent passive reabsorption of water, and that's ferrosamide. And that's a profound diuresis. We have thiazide, like hydrochlothiazide, that works on the early segment of the distal convoluted tubule. It has it blocks sodium and chloride reabsorption once again, but has a much smaller um, effect. We have the potassium-sparing diuretics that either block aldosterone or directly block potassium loss. And then finally, we have the osmotic diuretics that are inert and kind of hang out in the urine filtrate to osmotically pull more liquids in. Okay, so the next section we'll be looking at is acid-base bilons. So as we know, metabolic processes require a normal range of acid-base balance, and this balance is going to be reflected by, reflected by the pH of the blood and determined by the ratio of acids and bases in the blood. So it is really important for the body to have a pH in between 7.35 and 7.45 to work efficiently. And that's gonna be balanced with um, bicarb and carbonic acid are gonna be the two forces at work. So as we know, acids are able to release hydrogen ions and they are gonna be continually produced as byproducts of metabolic processes. On the other hand, bases can accept or combine with um, a hydrogen ion. So acids donate hydrogen ions, bases accept them. So acids and bases exist as buffer pairs or systems to maintain that pH in that narrow range from 7.35 to 7.45. Um, in people with extreme pHs, if you have a pH of less than 7.25 or greater than 7.55, it can be life-threatening. And you usually have a ratio of 20 to 1 of bicarb to carbonic acid, but any changes in that would result in changes of the pH. 
So the body has a number of normal buffer systems that are hoping to kind of restore and promote a normal pH. So first we have the proteins, the albumins and globulins in the blood. They're actually able to change structure to take on a release um, hydrogen. So that's a really effective way of maintaining it just in the blood. We also have the potassium buffer. So cells are able to exchange hydrogen with potassium to reduce acidity. So if you're in um, acidosis, cells would be taking in more hydrogen and releasing more potassium. So you could have hyperkalemia and the opposite in alkalosis. We also have that bicarbonate buffer, buffer system like we talked about with the bicarbonate um, and the carbonic acid with that can um, be excreted as either hydrogen or CO2. So for a normal metabolic balance, we have different types of acids. Um, volatile acids can be excreted by the lungs and non-volatile acids will be excreted by the kidneys. The lung bus buffer system is fast and inefficient, so it's not going to be able to completely turn the pH back to normal, but it will be releasing CO2 in acidotic states and retaining CO2 in alkaline states. The kidneys, on the other hand, are slow and efficient. So they're going to be either excreting um, hydrogen ions, and that would be in an acidotic state. They could also regenerate or excrete um, bicarb as needed. So our respiratory imbalances, when you have respiratory acidosis, you have an excessive CO2 level usually caused by ineffective respiration. You could also have respiratory alkalosis, which would be a decreased CO2 level and excessive respiration. On the metabolic side, um, we could have acidosis, which would be increased levels of acid or decreased bicarb levels, or both. It's usually due to um, excessive metabolic activity or renal failure, but it could also be things like trauma, fighting off diseases, anything like that. We also have metabolic alkalosis where you have decreased hydrogen levels or increased bicarb levels. And this is generally due to the metabolic loss of acids or the gain of alkalinity. So this is going to be monitored with ABGs, arterial blood gas. So the labs that we're looking at here are pH, PaCO2, and bicarb. So the pH, as we know, we want it between 7.35 and 7.45. The CO2 should be between um, 35 and 45 millimeters Hg. And bicarb should be between 22 and 26 milliequivalents per liter. So this can indicate acid-base status just with these three. So when you have acidosis, it's going to be a lower pH. Alkalosis, you'll see a high pH. When we're trying to determine whether it has a metabolic or respiratory origin, in respiratory, you would see a CO2 change inverse to the pH, and in metabolic, you would see a bicarb change in the same direction. So if you were looking at a respiratory acidosis, you would have a low pH and a high CO2, and an alkalose high pH, low CO2 for respiratory. So as I was just saying, in respiratory acidosis, you have a low pH and an elevated pCO2. So causes, it could be hypoventilation due to respiratory depression, decreased chest expansion, airway obstruction, decreased alveolar capillary exchange. So anything like that, either problems breathing or problems with um, gas exchange. The signs and symptoms, you'll see central nervous system depression, blurred vision, vertigo, headache, tachycardia, and cardiac dysrhythmias. 
And the body is going to try to compensate for this. So you'll see lungs increasing the rate and depth of breathing and kidneys trying to eliminate hydrogen and retain bicarb. In respiratory alkalosis, you'll have an elevated pH and a decreased CO2. So this is caused by hyperventilation, fever, anxiety, prolonged sobbing, hypoxemia, or salicylate overdose. So signs and symptoms for respiratory alkalosis, we have um, central nervous system irritability, lightheadedness, paresthesias, um, and cardiac dysrhythmias. So the compensation you'd see here, the kidneys would be holding on to bi onto hydrogen ions and excreting more bicarb. This is a slow process and it's often not needed due to the causes of someone sobbing really quickly. All they need to do is just stop that and their um, acid base balance will be restored. So next we have metabolic acidosis. This is a decrease in pH and increase in acid, usually keto acids, not carbonic, with an associated decrease in bicarb. So the causes of this, you could see acid accumulation, such as in DKA, renal failure, starvation, alcoholism, infection, burns, and shock, or also a loss of bicarb through diarrhea. The signs and symptoms, CNS depression, similarly to respiratory acidosis, also headache, abdominal pain, and cardiac dysrhythmias. For compensation, you'll see the individual, um, the lungs are going to try to excrete way more CO2, so you'll have Kussmaul respirations, which are really deep, really fast, labored breathing. And also the kidneys will be conserving more bicarb. In metabolic alkalosis, you'll have increased pH and bicarb. So the cause is you could have just an accumulation of bicarbonate, like ingesting over-the-counter bicarb products or massive infusions with citrated products, such as blood. You could also have a loss of acid through emesis or gastric suction. So some signs and symptoms, you could have CNS irritability and cardiac dysrhythmias are the big two. And for compensation, you're going to have respiratory depression, so the lungs can retain more CO2 and the kidneys will be excreting more bicarb. So when we're looking at compensation and trying to figure out if it's compensated, it's going to be all about pH. So the opposite system is going to be trying to compensate for the abnormalities. So the opposite system will move beyond its normal range to pull the others back towards normal. So compensation will occur when the pH returns to normal. And you can generally tell um, whether it's going to be, whether the original problem was due to metabolic or respiratory and alkalosis or acidosis based on whether the pH is a little bit lower than the average of 7.4 or higher.